0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Sam Wong, who is a serial entrepreneur. He has been a CEO, CTO, or VP of Engineering Tech Ops for five companies, driving multiple acquisitions. He is hands-on, roll-up-the-sleeve startup advisor. Sam draws from his 30 years of successes and failures to train and help entrepreneurs with execution, fundability, fundraising, strategy, product market fit, product management finance, and much more. On today's show, we talk about how did going through a failed acquisition affect the company? How is your MMA deck, mergers and acquisition deck different from a fundraising pitch deck? Why is having multiple offers to choose from important as the seller of a business? And how does an investment banker prep an owner, founder of a company for a sale? This is much more today's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. So let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Sam, thank you for taking the time today to be our guest on Well, this is a very important subject. Mergers and acquisitions, the buying and selling process. And we've had so many people ask us questions about this. It's great to actually have someone that's gone through and really experienced it for themselves. So with that, can you tell our audience a little bit about why you're a good person to talk about the topic
1: of selling a company? Well, first of all, I don't think I'm the best person to be able to talk about it. But I did have the benefit of having three startups exit I also had another startup that I advised that also had an exit. And on top of that, besides the three and plus one exits, there was another company that another time we tried to get acquired and that fell through. That actually taught me a lot about what to do, what not to do. I got to see what worked and what didn't work. So you said one fell through. Can you talk a little bit about that before we go into the successes? Honestly, it was the first attempt that I'd had to actually sell a company. It was startup number four. I was the first time CEO. I was still learning a ton about what I needed to do. And we started off doing a partnership with this one company. The partnership went reasonably well. We did some projects together and we kind of concluded that it would behoove us to kind of do a roll up. Basically, the combination of our two companies would be stronger than each one of us individually. We started the process. I found a startup attorney and we went through the back and forth negotiation. Probably lasted about three and a half months or so, three to four months to, from start to finish. There were tons of details that really helped. I really, really can't emphasize enough the benefit of a strong startup attorney. We had a very good process. Sam, can you talk a little bit about
0: the failed acquisition, the failed attempt to sell your company, before we go into the successes?
1: Yeah, it was actually a very much a learning experience. I was a first time CEO. And I hadn't obviously done an acquisition or a merger before. We found a company that thought we might work well together. We did some projects together, just verify that. Those projects went well. And both the other company and us thought we'd be stronger if we combined forces, rolled our efforts together, that it would be stronger than each one of us separately. The process itself was very educational we relied heavily on a startup attorney and I loved the attorney that we had. That particular attorney helped us a ton to be able to solve a lot of the issues. One of the issues that came up was various terms, conditions on the acquisition. And I remember the opposing attorney made some derogatory comment, I'll just say, or just a denigrating comment to try to get us to reduce our price and the value of the, the acquisition. I remember watching my attorney. I felt a little funny about the comment My attorney immediately took the guy to task. He explained why that was an unreasonable expectation, why his logic and behind uh, trying to reduce our price was completely flawed and cleaned his clock, basically. (laughs) And I looked at that and I said, yeah,
0: go, go, go. It's Um, great to have someone on your team so you didn't come across as the person that was fighting. You weren't the confrontational one. This other third party was. That's a huge benefit to having that, that person on your team. Can you talk a little bit more, continue what was happening in that negotiation, in that conversation?
1: So there are two or three different situations where my attorney basically did a fantastic job, not just with contract stuff, but defending me on the negotiation. And when a certain request came in, that was, there was another request that came in where they were trying to pay me in the future for present value. No, my attorney immediately took the guy to task again that no, future payment should be for future value. company has a value today. You can't defer a payment in the future to pay for something you're buying now. I love the fact that he helped a ton. We finally got through the process to be able to get the definitive agreement. And I remember I was about to book my flight to Pacific Northwest to the lawyer's office to sign the definitive agreement and pop the champagne bottles. What ended up happening was that the opposing company's board spent a little bit more time looking at the financials and felt like the companies would not combined, would not be sufficiently capitalized, that they wanted more financial resources in the combined bank accounts. So they actually set a financial target on both ourselves as well as their own company that said, okay, unless you hit these targets, we're not going to approve the acquisition. Three months later, we hit our target, but the opposing company did not. That basically resulted in the company, the acquisition being called off. It was very painful because obviously my employees knew that we were going through the acquisition process. You can't really keep that stuff quiet. There was all this buildup of, yeah, we're finally going to get to this type of exit. We're going to have a stronger company. And then morale actually took a big hit. In addition, I spent so much time working on the acquisition. I wasn't running the company anymore, really. It was a more than a full-time job to work on the acquisition. And by the time the acquisition was put on hold and then got called off, we were flying high at 35,000 feet and we slowly started to descend and we're down to 5,000 feet say, hey, I've got this jet plane. We got to get back up to cruising altitude. That was another challenge that I didn't really anticipate. And it took probably two months to recover from that loss of altitude, loss of airspeed.
0: That's fascinating. A couple of things that you said right there. One, the time of the process. Two. The board on the acquirer put in these terms right at the very end yes. of the due diligence part. And for our audience, the definitive agreement, I mean, that's basically the contract where we sign and the money transferred way after the LOI, the letter of intent. It's the very, very end of probably a six to nine month process for most of these transactions. And then for the buyer to miss their numbers, that's painful. It was. Sam I'm sorry to hear about that first attempt, but you mentioned it you learned a lot of lessons that set you up for the
1: next one, which was successful. So can you talk a little bit about why and what you did different for that successful one? The second time we went through the M&;A process, we actually hired an investment banker. That ended up being a phenomenal decision. I've never actually worked with an investment banker before, and we had our companies that we thought we would want to target to potentially acquire us. They actually brought a number of companies as well because they work with a number of buyers who are repeat buyers. So we were able to combine a a target list of about almost eight to 10 companies. We ended up going out and soliciting the conversations with them. And the investment banker did all that for us. I didn't have to go do it. It was much more of a, hey, I'm here to shop a company thing. It wasn't unusual. So they were doing their job And it didn't make me look quite as desperate to sell. We got interest from several of these companies. We really pitched, I think, seven of them. And of the seven, we got five offers. So that was phenomenal for us. We were able to pick and choose and able to drive some competition and interest. One key thing that did go differently was the prep from the investment bank. Again, I mentioned I was a first-time CEO. I'd never gone through an M&A process before. And I'd never been prepared to have meetings, conversations like I was with this investment banker. The investment banker had a lot of experience, had been a former CEO herself. She had also run corporate development. So she'd done several acquisitions. And now I might've been her 30th or 40th acquisition process. She was very, very seasoned. There's a scene in the movie, American President, where maybe about five minutes in, the actor playing the president is walking down the hallway and he's got his executive assistant clearing the way for him and says, happy birthday, whoever. And then the president, of course, says, happy birthday to the person who they just passed. Make sure you send her flowers. You already did. I just love that. I felt like I had somebody who was preparing me for every conversation, made it look like I was on top of everything. We rehearsed topics to discuss. We put together a pitch deck that they guided me on. We practiced on how to handle certain objections I felt like I had a professional handler. I felt like a movie star when I certainly wasn't. So it was a phenomenal experience.
0: So I have to dive deeper. One, the preparation. How long did you and the company prepare for this second time? Was it just a few days, a few weeks, a few months? And then after that, I'm really curious about, you mentioned that deck, but before going into the pitch deck that's different than your your MMA deck, different than your pitch deck, let's talk about the preparation period.
1: The preparation actually went faster than I think was typical because as you mentioned earlier, every acquisition process involves some due diligence. We had run a very, very clean operation. The books were tight. They were up to date. They were accurate. Contracts were very carefully done and they were all stored and accessible. I didn't realize how having a clean house, having everything in order and organized really accelerated the process. So what normally would take maybe a month or more to be able to do the prep, I'm going to guess our prep took about two and a half to three weeks. The benefit of having a clean bill of health is that we didn't really have all these things to clean up. We didn't have skeletons in the closet that we had to hide or whatever. Everything was clean. So it took about three weeks or so. They had given us a checklist, things to pay attention to. It was great to be able to have that because, again, not having done a merger or an acquisition before, I didn't know what I should do. And I felt like just doing a Google search may not. A do-it-yourself process might work for being a home plumber, but it's not going to work that well for being somebody who's trying to sell a company for a lot of money. What surprises a lot of people is how
0: extensive list is. Now, when you got this list, was it just a few items or did it really go into
1: detail? It is a very extensive list. And the amount of due diligence really depends based on the acquirer. The situation that we went through, they gave us a very comprehensive checklist. There's one checklist that I refer people to online that has over 200 items to pay attention to. And each one of the 200 items could take anywhere from five minutes to five hours to do. So if you assume that it just takes one hour on the conservative side to be able to do each one of the items on average, that's 200 hours worth of work. And most of that work is done by the executive staff or by me as the CEO. There was a lot of prep if you're not already on top of it. Thankfully, we were on top of tons of stuff. So instead of one hour on average for the 200 items, we probably averaged 10 to 15 minutes
0: per item. That's fantastic.
1: As an investment banker, it's so great here when the client that you're working with is ready for that process and they're actually pushing you to keep it. Right. There were still, I will say, there were still maybe five to 10 items that took a couple of hours to a couple of days to do. That was much better to have five to 10 than 50 items.
0: So Sam, could you go a little bit more into
1: detail about,
0: maybe for our listeners out there, the difference between a pitch deck for an early stage company that's raising capital and the marketing material that the investment banker was using when they were bringing your company out to market to be acquired?
1: Many people in the startup space hear that getting an investment from an investor, you know, a fundraising investment from an investor, is like getting married. And that's mostly true. But it's actually not a perfect analogy. That investor, if you get money from an investor, it's kind of like saying, okay, we're going to live under the same house. You've got a big house, you're going to have one room, you're going to have another, and you do have to interact with each other a lot, but you're not really getting married. Whereas getting acquired by another company, you are getting married. You're going to have kids together. So it's not just living in the same house. Of course, you need to make sure you work well together to live in the same house, but you're ultimately not as close to them as you are when you get acquired by an acquiring company. You have to go to work with the person. You have to see them every day. That's where the analogy is not quite perfect. Because of that difference, there is also a very big impact on pitch decks. A fundraising investment pitch deck tends to be shorter, more speculative, looking forward into the future. The fundraising process, you're going to deal with a big topic, which is also going to be valuation. In investor fundraising valuation, that is part art, part science, but it's mostly art and a little bit of science. To contrast, the M&A pitch deck, it's going to maybe not be quite as speculative. Of course, you want to talk about the potential benefit of the combined companies. That's going to be speculative in the future. But most of it is going to be talking about the past. What have you built? What are the major assets of the company, both tangible as well as intangible, technology, people, whatever the case may be? So you look more in, in the past about what you've done, what you've built. In addition, the valuation exercise, which will eventually come, is more science than it is art. So there's a lot more tangible detail that you can point to, whether it be your revenue, your profitability, your growth, your customers. There's a lot more data, which allows a more scientific process to go through to be able to come up with a valuation. Given that, the acquisition pitch deck, tends to need a lot more data points, at least in the backup content, to be able to support the valuation exercise. I mean, it's very interesting. Early stage pitch decks,
0: 10, 15 slides, talk a little bit about one slides for the team, slides for patents or that. Whereas the MMA, the marketing materials for them, confidential information memorandum, 60-page document in detail, which is a summary of the data room, which we talked about earlier, that might have. 200 items that were put into it. So you're taking all this information, filling it down to just enough for the SIM and marketing material to push it out, to get the attention of. And you're right, there's just so much more information that is used for that material than an earlier stage company that is kind of pitching. But with that, and Sam, I mean, a pitch deck, pretty well defined, 10 slides, 10 topics, have the Guy Kiyosaki pitch deck? You have the Y Conner, You have all these examples out there. For the marketing material and that that was created for promoting the company, was there sections to it? What kind of stood
1: out to you in the final result that was made? There's tons of guidance, tons of examples on startup fundraising pitch decks, and they tend to be short. There's a lot of value there. In m and A M&A pitch deck, you obviously don't want to overwhelm the recipient. You still have some type of executive summary. 10, 12, 15 slides, I would say the things that stood out, one was that there's not really a, I think we had about five major sections, business and overview, products and services, customer overview, financials, and then future projections. There really wasn't one section that stood out. It was very telling how much the company really, that was going to acquire us, how much they really wanted to understand all of that. The thing that was a major difference would be the backup. Standard startup fundraising pitch decks, they do have encouragement to have some type of backup content. The average pitch deck that I see as sometimes a pitch deck judge, pitch event judge, or just a coach for pitch coach, the average deck has just a few slides in the back. But in our MA deck, we had to be ready. You said the full comprehensive document can be 60 plus pages. We had probably 35, 40 deck slide, of which the first 15 12 to 15 was the core presentation. But in order to prepare and handle all of the questions that would likely come up, we had to have a lot more backup content. It wasn't a complete copy of the due diligence data room, but it was a summary. And one of the things I found, whether you're trying to sell your company or you're trying to sell your product, is when you're having a conversation with a customer, especially if it's an enterprise like sales cycle, which an MA deal is, you want to be able to be very prepared to handle. Any objections right there on the spot. If you ever have to say, I'll get back to you, or I don't know, that's not the end of the world, but it just slows things down. Time is the enemy of all deals. So you want to keep things moving along. You want to keep momentum going. We had to be ultra prepared to be able to handle it, which is why we needed all the backup content in the slide deck. If we had a question, we could go off track and go straight to that slide and go get the hard data, which you need it to be able to squash that objection so you can keep moving right there on the spot. And one thing that a lot of people probably
0: aren't aware of is the investment banker during this process is kind of guiding the conversation. If there's questions, he can defer them He or she is able to answer a lot of the questions on their own because they've gone through the data room. They've done all that research. But with that, there's a term, leaving money on the table. And this is something that a lot of people are concerned about throughout the whole process. Am I getting the right valuation? What is the market? Can you go and tell a little bit about that saying?
1: So in terms of leaving money on the table, number one, I think it really helped us a ton to have an investment bank. If you're selling a house, it helps to have a realtor who knows the ins and outs of what happens when a negotiation comes in, how to be able to position, because having that from an investment banker perspective. I had never gone through the process before. I did not realize how much every single answer I gave affected the next answer I could give. Having somebody who had gone through that, who was better at positioning than I was, was very, very important. The concept of leaving money on the table, I think there was another startup that basically went through an acquisition and got a nice nine-figure acquisition. But unfortunately, because of poor execution, that company, although they got acquired, if you actually do a comp, you compare it to another similar company that got acquired, there was another company that got acquired for 2.1 times more money. So the funny thing is, is that the company that left some money on the table, post-acquisition, that company drove a lot more revenue for the acquiring company than the company that got acquired for more. So the acquiring company acquired two companies, one for, say, $100, the other one for, say, $210. But the company that got acquired for $100 drove a ton more revenue. What that basically says to me is because of various problems during the acquisition process, even various problems of execution, it's not all about brushing yourself up during the sales process. If you're putting makeup on a blemish, you can only do so much work. What you should have done was make sure if you're selling a house, fresh coat of paint will help, but if you're selling the house, you should have dealt with all the termites two years ago. When you built out that new bathroom, you shouldn't have gone and done it on the cheap. You shouldn't have done it without a permit, which reduces your value. All those things, the poor execution decisions all the way up until the acquisition process were contributing factors that drove the price down. The funny thing was, is that lots of people made a lot of money, which was great, but they left a lot of money on the table and didn't even know it until the next company came and got acquired. They saw the end results. like. When you're talking about acquisitions above $100 million, 2x $100 million is a lot of money.
0: Going back to the acquisition itself, how did it feel when they were going through your company?
1: Coming buyer will oftentimes go with the uh, recommendations of the company that's being acquired, the executive team's recommendations. However, in terms of who to keep. But I would say that each business function, each key executive will probably have to go through some type of presentation talking about their specific business function and going through that level of detail. I remember at one of the startups that we were at, we had a lot of channel experience. We, that particular company sold software through the channel and we had built out the strongest channel. We actually were able, to, when it was time for me to present that portion of what we had built out, I had done the research comparing our two actually yeah, our two other major competitors and comparing the strength of their channel and the graphs were like this. We had forty plus almost four dozen different signed channel partners, many of them doing more than a hundred million in revenue each. So the size of your partners was a big asset in that we were talking to somebody who could see we had a channel to be able to move our product. The other competitors had anywhere from one quarter to one tenth of the channel strength and presence that we had. In fact one of the other competitors, we would go to the same trade shows and events, and after the show wrap up, we'd sit and talk about how things were going. And his frustration was every time he talked to a channel partner, they were already dealing with you. Said, "I'm already dealing with that guy," so he was so frustrated. I just quietly smirked and tried not to enjoy myself too much. But that was just a great opportunity and a great example of how each person who leads a function, if you want a role at the new company, you have to make sure. That you've demonstrated that you can contribute. How beneficial is it to have multiple offers? If someone
0: came to you with an unsolicited offer to acquire your company, would that be good enough? Should you go, okay, this is an offer, I'll take this, I'll move forward? Or should you try to get multiple offers? From your experience, what are your thoughts?
1: We actually had, as I mentioned earlier, five different offers. Those five offers were very different. One was all cash. Another one was mostly stock, a very small amount of cash, of course, you everything in between. When we went through the detail, there was some strong affinity with the company that was making the heavy stock offer, but there was some concern because they were not getting some detail about some convertible instruments and some past contracts that basically made it look concerning to me about, will the stock actually be worth something later? The company that was uh, gave us the all cash offer, that wasn't the highest offer, but it was the one that we ended up accepting for, for startup number four. When we signed the memorandum of understanding to do the acquisition, number one is that agreement had a no shop clause. So we had to stop talking with the other potential suitors. By knowing that there were other potential suitors waiting in the wings, we were able to negotiate some of the finer level details. Of course, before you sign the memorandum of understanding to do the acquisition, the tentative agreement, if you will, you have the big numbers in terms of pricing, et cetera, and how much financial value. That's kind of set. There are low-level details that aren't set. And as you go into these low-level details, sometimes the acquiring company doesn't want to budge, doesn't want to give on them. So it, by knowing that there were other acquiring companies waiting in the wings, we were able to get them to basically concede or at least negotiate on some of those low-level details that don't come up when you're dealing with high-level numbers. And again, I would also say having the investment banker at that point, they were actually able to represent me. I had a great startup attorney. I had a great investment bank. When some of these low-level problems came up, I could have made a little bit of a stink by saying, hey, I kind of want this, but our investment banker advised me to stay silent, let her deal with it. And that preserved my relationship with the acquiring company because I had to work with them afterward. As I mentioned earlier, it truly is a marriage. You have to work together. If during the your dating process with the person, your, your future spouse, if you end up grinding them down, how's that going to go once you do get married? That's not going to work. Can we go a little bit more
0: into the relationship and the prep that you had with the investment banker going into these conversations?
1: Yeah, so I really enjoyed having the time. We went through a lot of role playing. She was very, very good at having gone through this process probably three dozen times, if not more. She was very, very good at helping me to be able to coach me on my responses. So I mentioned earlier, everything that you say. Today affects what you can say tomorrow or in the next five minutes. So there are certain times where I would, when given a certain question, I thought I'd like to take this stance or this position. And she would coach me and say, you could do that, but realize if you wanted this tomorrow, what you just said makes it very hard to ask that because they're inconsistent. And those are things that I didn't really see or recognize. So having that wisdom, that experience, in essence, kind of like the president having a good press secretary. That person is very experienced at handling those types of questions, and that person helped me a ton to be able to go through it, which meant I had to put in, it was not fun, it was not enjoyable, at least not for me, but it made me handle live conversations that much better.
0: And what about the legal counsel in all of this? How important, looking back, was having a good legal counsel?
1: I loved my attorney through this process. Our attorney listened to what my goals were. There were certain things that were important to me, and he understood that. There were certain things that were less important. There were a certain amount of risk that I was willing to undertake. And he was able to apply my goals to how he presented and formulated a legal strategy and a negotiation strategy. I've worked with some attorneys who try to minimize all risk possible. Well, don't go outside. Lock your door. Don't turn the lights on. That's the case. Don't do business. There is going to be some risk, but uh, this particular attorney that we've worked with, this person was able to take our goals, our risk tolerance, and shape it into an approach that worked. More. I mean, things have changed. Now everything
0: is on Zoom or some type of virtual platform. In the past, it was a lot more in person. In the future, who knows? Maybe it's a hybrid. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? But Can you tell our audience a little bit about the roadshow process? What takes place? What was your experience?
1: So the roadshow is definitely an important part of it. But I would say this is that the roadshow is important because everybody talks about making sure you get multiple bidders to be able to drive up competition. Getting the roadshow all done in a very short amount of time ensures that the bids come in roughly about the same time in order to keep everything moving, you have to build a machine. That machine has to be able to present the story very, very quickly, very, very clearly, and then solicit bids very, very quickly so that the bids come in at roughly the same amount of time. If you don't have the machine well-built, when you go out and present to a potential acquirer, there may be longer questions, there may be more processes. So that bid might come in late, and if it comes in after you sign a memorandum of understanding with a no shop clause, you can't talk to that person anymore and you've eliminated a potential acquirer. So having everything well-scripted, well-prepared, all the detail together helps everything to go very, very smoothly, which is important because, again, you want that competition to happen and to line up the bids from a timing perspective, happen, a key factor to make that happen is the quality of preparation in the roadshow.
0: Now, when we're at the very end of the process, after the definitive agreement, after things are signed, now, I guess you could say the keys are handed over. What was that, from your experience, what was the onboarding experience like for when the checks were done, the, the payment was done, and now you're working for this other company?
1: It was very, very challenging because to a certain degree, it's nice to have the definitive agreement signed, the wire transfer done, money in the bank. However, the work's not done yet because the acquiring company is probably going to want to extract the value as quickly as possible. They don't want to billy dally and delay. So there's a lot of integration work. One of the companies that startup number five was acquired by Cisco and basically Cisco had has this acquisition process. They acquire maybe 10 companies a year. Cisco had 200 people working on the, the potential acquisition and then about that many who would work on the integration. Yes, we celebrated for uh, maybe one evening that the acquisition was signed, but then we went into integration mode, which was a ton of work. It took probably two, took three months until we were done with enough of the work. Finally, calm down, rest and breathe. And during that process, everything that we claimed during the sales cycle, we had to demonstrate was actually true. We claim we put the cap back on the toothpaste tube. We actually had to live it when we finally got married. The key thing there is maybe the lesson learned. I've seen some founders or some CEOs desperately want to sell to the point where they oversell. I don't believe in overselling. It's fine to position, it's fine to cheerlead, but when you oversell something, if that deal finally gets consummated, they're going to expect you to hit that target or whatever it may be. If you claim you can take someone to the moon, you better be able to do that. Okay, so you're acquired, you celebrate
0: that one evening. Tell us about that emotional ride that you went through from the... Going to market getting in the LOI having the quiet period getting the definitive agreement tell us about emotionally
1: what was going on that entire time sure it's, it's quite a ride the f- very first time we went through the process we had a smaller company and me as a CEO when I focused so much of my time and attention on that you know the company was cruising at 35,000 feet 600 miles an hour the moment I focused on the M&A. It was so all-consuming. It's like shutting down one of the engines on a two-engine aircraft. Eventually, the plane's not going to crash, but it's going to lose some airspeed. It's going to potentially lose some altitude as well. So you're trying to get all these suitors to give you bids. It's anxious because you're constantly focused on how to be able to sell, how to be able to position. There's a lot of anxiety that speeds up during that process. And then you're also looking at your instrument panel on the pilot cockpit. So there's a lot of anxiety. You're talking with your employees. They're anxious because all that they've worked for, the team is relying on your ability to execute their sacrifices, their time, their years of going with a below market salary. Those investments and sacrifices that they make are tied to how well you do. Once the acquisition is signed, Of course, there's a relief, there's celebration, everybody's happy. But then again, the work continues. I will say this is that in talking with an attorney who advised me on one of the acquisitions, you know, you've worked really, really hard for a good amount of time. You've been sprinting. It's not wrong to just rest in bed. I had to allow myself once the acquisition integration, the key elements were done. I had to allow myself to take some nice trips with my family and just to sit around and watch TV sometimes. Sam, and
0: after your experience, I mean, many people, they don't use investment bankers. They do everything on their own. From your experience, what are some of the benefits or negatives of doing it on your own versus hiring an investment banker?
1: As I look back in hindsight, um, I tried to do it by myself. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was thankful I had a very good attorney, but that attorney focused mostly on the legal and helped some on the business side. But there's a lot more that I think I could have done having gone through the process. Definitely say that if you have anything of substance, it helps just to have a personal guide. That plus the fact that the investment banker brought more suitors, more bids in. Were
0: there any topics or things that you think our audience should know before wrap?
1: Yeah, I do think there's a couple of things. One is contracts. We already talked about the importance of having clean contracts. Many of your contracts, if the contracts aren't well structured, for example, transferability or transfer rights, what that might result in is let's say I have a contract with a third party company, Acme, and Acme, I didn't negotiate transfer rights or assignment rights into the contracts. That means that when I'm about to get acquired, in order for the acquiring, the acquisition to happen, I have to go to Acme, tell them I'm getting acquired, and say, will you please, please allow me to transfer or assign this contracts and if they say no then that could potentially block my acquisition i could potentially have to buy them out in order to get them to waive a certain clause or let me assign the unintended consequence of poorly structured contracts may be that you have somebody who blocks your acquisition somebody has no business blocking your acquisition and you have to get some type of concession So clean contracts, absolutely key, termination rights, in addition, even the contracts to get acquired. If the acquisition process doesn't go as smoothly, you're asking for some concessions and the buying company is not willing to give them, the better positioned you are, the better you can negotiate the no-shop period and no-shop clauses. Oftentimes, they'll come in and ask for a 60 to 90-day no-shop period. If you're a better position, you can ask for a 30 to 45 day, which forces them and you to move quickly, mostly them, to move more quickly. I've seen situations where the acquiring company kind of sometimes drags their feet on some issues as they muddle and think about certain requests that by having a strong, attractive company, you can negotiate time period of the no-shop period down and use that to your advantage where the time finally works in your favor. The other thing I might say is that having gone through multiple acquisitions now and having been, obviously, a first-time CEO, etc., I had to learn that a company is not a baby. Many startup founders will treat it as if, hey, I've got two kids and this is my third kid. This is my baby. I did that as well. As I look back, I had one person who was advising me, somebody who's older, more mature, who basically said, a company is not a baby. is an asset, just like a house. To make decisions, assuming that your company is your baby, oftentimes results in poor decisions, poor boundaries, oftentimes would result in many founders who tend to be very wrapped up in their company. It does no good to have a good, strong financial exit, but not have any family or friends to celebrate. And with
0: that, Sam, anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the
1: best way to go about doing that? I run a company, fundablestartups.com. You can go to the website and see what we're doing now. We basically train and advise and coach founders to be able to build fundable, healthy companies. Most people, most founders only look for help when it comes to maybe fundraising and pitching. That's such a small piece of the puzzle. As I mentioned several times before, good execution allows you to to build a company that's healthy with a good story. Telling someone... Just working on the pitch alone is a mistake because if you're trying to get a date or something it doesn't help to just work on a pickup line The best thing to do is shower brush your teeth get a job learn how to carry a conversation all these things are much more important than just hey baby what's your sign okay <laughs> all right with that we'll have all that information in the show notes
0: and Sam I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast and I want to thank you for also bringing me into your house, setting up the studio for today. We have all this great footage that we're going to use, repurpose many different ways. So Sam, I want to thank you for the hours and hours and hours spent setting all this up today. It was fun. I always wanted to be a Hollywood filmmaker, and hopefully it turns out good. With that, everyone, if you got any feedback, if you enjoyed this, please give us five stars on iTunes. Check out the SiliconValleyPodcast.com website, and stay tuned for next week's episode. And with that, one more time, Sam Wong, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Pam. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.